0: Hi, it's Jesse here. This episode is a re-release of a previously recorded episode. We thought this was too good to let it sit with the sound quality that we got on our first production, so we've remastered this one and hopefully it can be one for the ages. So please enjoy and share with your friends.
1: Hi, my name's Tori and I wish I knew more about blood products. Hi, my name is Leticia. I wish I knew more about taking care of myself when starting shift work. Hi, my name is Lydia. I wish I would know more about how to work as in an a team and solve conflict.
2: Hello, welcome to Five Things, the nursing podcast from the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. My name is Liz Crow.
0: I'm Jesse Spur, and this is a podcast by, for, and with the amazing nurses and health professionals in our corner of the world. We hope to connect with a global community as we move from surviving to thriving. Welcome to Five Things.
2: Hello, my name is Liz Crow.
0: And I'm Jesse Spur.
2: And welcome to another episode of Five Things. And today we're going to talk about something so very important, an area I feel, you know, I know Jesse and I feel very passionate about, and someone we've been dying to have in with us. Because we're going to talk about the very important issue of domestic and family violence. And we're welcoming Yelena Senich, who is the domestic and family violence workforce specialist here. Welcome. Hello, thank you.
0: Hey, Yelena. Certainly a well and truly qualified guest on here, which is why we're again reaching outside of the nursing circle to uh, your clinical background being social work. Love to hear a little bit about your origin story and how you kind of found yourself working in um, domestic and family violence space.
1: Sure. So, uh, when I was in high school, I was very. I had a one of my really close friends. Her mum was a social worker, so she was a huge mentor for me. And she actually worked in child safety. And so I thought that that's what I that's what I'll do. Went through my university degree and and just realized during my first placement at a domestic violence service, this is it. I've landed. This is my place. You know, it really resonated. Um, it really struck a passion in me. The domestic and family violence work. And um, I just sort of spent the last 10 years sort of making my way through different angles of the service sector in domestic and family violence. I did a bit of co response with police. I opened up some programs in Mount Isa, um, Toowoomba, worked in some women's shelters, uh, worked through sort of the crisis response. And then um, did some more sort of multi-agency work where I was working with other agencies to come together and make plans and, and try to support safety and accountability. Um, and then I thought, I'd love to be a hospital social worker. And so I've I've made my way into health and have been very privileged and lucky to have some roles um, come up as, as some new funding came out that were DB specific roles and. That's sort of how I got to where I am. Oh,
0: wow. and, and now a lot of your work is actually supporting and enhancing the work of other health professionals um, in the domestic and family violence recognition, prevention, sort of remediation and caregiving space.
1: Yes, absolutely. So So mainly what I'm what I'm doing now is supporting um, other clinicians from social work but through to all health professionals. Um, around how to do best practice in the health, hospital, and health setting um, when it comes to domestic and family violence, and deliver trainings and different different ways for people to build um, their knowledge and their confidence in this area in the health sector.
2: And moving forward in the podcast, we'll start calling it DFE, which is what most people are used to hearing it as a as a term. Um, it used to be just domestic violence or DV. It's now D F V domestic and family violence. Can you just talk us through what is the definition of domestic and family violence, and why we've kind of moved from domestic violence to include family violence?
1: Sure. So it's an interesting space in that a lot of the um, I guess terminology that we use is constantly evolving, as as with most spaces, I'm sure. Um, domestic and family violence is now the term we use just to better encapsulate. Um, the, the range and the, the broad um, variety of relationships that could be relevant um, when we're talking about domestic and family violence. Um, so, it's just a recognition really that um, it is not only in intimate partner relationships or in um, um, marriages. Um, however, it, it actually also um, can occur with family members, formal and informal caregivers. Um, and and um, other kinship relationships um, that are relevant in, in different cultures and, and um, for different nationalities as well. Yeah. And so that can be child to elderly
2: parent, uh, aunt to niece, you know, a whole range of things is now included in that definition, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. Yes. And it, it's now just better specified. And so as our understanding and our knowledge and our experience is growing, we're we're understanding that domestic and family violence is is quite can be quite broad um but still is within those relevant relationships of of family and caregivers as well
2: yeah right so let's jump into your first point which is that um dfv is really a gendered issue
1: yeah so um, the reason that is the first sort of point that we just start at is because it's really important for us to understand the evidence base, um the really strong and consistent and wide range of evidence base, both in Australia but also internationally, um that really is saying that domestic and family violence is disproportionately experienced by uh, female or people who identify as as women or females um and um perpetrated. Disproportionately by men or people who identify as men, um, and that is um, because of various um, systemic and structural um, layers of oppression um, and I guess inequality that that are experienced by females um, that that contribute to some of the drivers of violence against women. So it's really important that we understand that. Um, we're not. We're not saying men don't experience violence. Um, however, what the evidence base is telling us is that the violence, the domestic violence experienced by women, is more frequent and severe, and likely to lead to significant injury, homicide, um, and to permanent disability or, or permanent chronic health issue.
2: Why is it that women are so much more disproportionately the victims? Of domestic and family violence. Sure. So we're
1: talking about an issue um, that is arising in the context of inequality and and social um, social inequality. So um, the some of the drivers of violence against women there are four key drivers. One of them is condoning the use of men's violence. One of them is rigid gender roles, um, and um, men's control of decision making. So those are the first two. And then we also have um, those male peer relations and dominant forms of masculinity as well. So we're talking about socially um, from from, uh, equal pay all the way through to um, positions of power and leadership, um, as well as various structures, um, such as, you know, um, different companies and different corporations, um, which really have an imbalance of power and control, um, and and that favours um, males within society, and and that really is a climate where um, women are more likely to be disadvantaged and more likely to be oppressed, and can lead from and can range from something as simple or or, or seemingly innocuous as some jokes or sexist comments all the way through to the the significant and severe forms of physical violence and and um, homicides and lethalities that we see time and time again in, in the media. Yeah,
0: That's a really interesting thing. And Liz and I have talked a, a lot about this good bloke rhetoric when a male perpetrates a socially unacceptable act, the gathering of other males usually around the, that and going, oh, yeah, but he's a really good bloke. My experience of him is a really good bloke. And also in contrast, the absence of that narrative of when a female um, perpetrates a socially unacceptable act, um, they're alone on an island quite often. So that's so, Like, I think for me that when Liz sort of raised that idea, and we've talked about that quite a lot in a lot of different situations, that's one that's kind of hit home a lot about really illustrating the differences around, around how we're judged in society.
1: Absolutely. And and part of that can be um, part of what we're talking about. You know, we hear the term a lot and, and often it, it can be quite misused now about um, male peer relationships being all, all parts of toxic masculinity. And part of toxic masculinity is really tapping into that um just what you've just exactly said there, Jesse, around um, you know, as as men and as peers, um, really what what should be happening in positive and healthy relationships is that we're holding each other accountable and we're saying hey mate that's actually that's actually not on or uh you know and I, I know you you just called your partner that that actually makes me feel a bit uncomfortable and that's really challenging and really difficult to to do that um for anyone um but what we see is the opposite where there's been there's been a harmful act or something that's not okay um and and some of these discourses around um the good blow can will that's not my experience of him and and that, you know, he's never he's never laid a finger on anyone else. Um, and then really easily leading into one of those other drivers we just talked about, which is the condoning of violence. So she must have done something, done something. But, you know, you still hear it's so frustrating
2: because, you know, I remember in the 90s being a really strong feminist and marching around certain things and I was thinking, you know, by the time my children are grown, this won't be an issue and in actual fact it's never it's never been more dangerous to, to be a female in a relationship. But this whole rhetoric of like, she's a psycho or she was a nag or like, well, I'd hate to live with her. You know, like that there must have been something where we constantly still are talking about what was the w- woman's role in leading to violence or leading to, you know, verbal abuse
1: yeah. rather than saying this is simply unacceptable. Absolutely. And, and that is all part of the, that social, social considerations that I'm talking about when we're talking about gender being being the, a factor that we need to understand where there's a very different response to female victims versus even male victims of, of violence, um, usually perpetrated by other men as well, um, to the responses that men who do harm get. Hmm. So I guess in, before we move to our
2: second point, I just think this is so important. In the health context, we need to be really careful about not reinforcing stereotypes, um, really being supportive of women in leadership roles, uh, helping women find their voice, uh, and, and I guess con- just conscious of our own behavior and what we find humorous as a way of giving
1: messages to our peers, don't we? Absolutely. That is that is the, the quickest and simplest way we can all start to to make some cultural and social change in this area. Perfect. So let's go to number two. And that is, you know, how if
2: I'm a healthcare professional, how do I recognize domestic and family
1: violence? Sure. So um one of the ways that we often talk about, and I think most of us are, are usually a bit more comfortable with, is when we're when we're noticing physical injuries. So that is one part, but really more frequently and and more I guess um important for us to understand is that domestic and family violence is about a pattern of behavior centered around power and control. Um and that coercive control and indicators of coercive control are really important for us to be able to recognize. So some some ways that that might look in the health setting um is that we might um, notice or observe or be advised that um, our patient doesn't have a lot of friends or doesn't have a lot of contact with family or friends or isn't allowed to make phone calls. Maybe they don't have a phone, maybe they don't have a way to get to and from the appointment. We're talking about some confining of resources there. So um, there's a limited ability to be autonomous and to be independent. Um, And so we might Pick up on some of those signs. We might pick up on a patient who might be using violence by recognizing indicators such as um, that they are talking about their partner in some of those really derogatory ways, whether really um, clearly derogatory or whether more subtle. So they might constantly, like you mentioned before, talk about their partner's mental health issues as a point of concern. She's she's really crazy. She's you know she she riles me up. You know it, it makes me really mad. Um, we might hear that um, their partner is a very uh, poor mother, or some criticism around the mothering, or criticism around her social circle. You know, her friends are no good. They, all, you know, they're the reason we broke up. Some comments around that nature can be really uh, indicators that that person might also be using coercive control in in their relationships. Um, and so, some other indicators that we might um, observe is some monitoring and surveillance. So we might observe we might be in an appointment or we might be seeing someone in an acute setting. Um, and we might observe that they're continuously on their phone and we might be having a lot of trouble getting them to cooperate or to um, um, take part in their health care. And so um, that could be to do with the fact that they're worried about their safety and they're maintaining and managing as best as possible their own safety because of a threat that we're unaware of. So it could be that if they don't reply to those messages, if they don't answer that phone call, there's a real threat there for their safety. So some of these forms are, are forms that I really um, frequently see and hear about with our clinicians. I guess the other thing is, is that, you know, we're talking
2: about our patients, but we need to be aware of our colleagues, don't don't we? And that initially some of those coercive or controlling kind of factors... When you first meet someone, it can look like, oh, their partner is so loving. You know, they've called nine times, they drop them off at work, they pick them up at work, they never want them to spend a Friday night without them. You can, it is con- complete control. Like, I'm just better with the money, so it's better that I look Absolutely. after it. Or, you know, like they don't even have $5 in their wallet yeah. um, to have autonomy to buy a, a soft drink while at work these are red flags. And they're not always, some people have, you know, that's their relationship. Um, Words of affirmation is their love language and there's texting, but it's the nature and I guess the tone, isn't it, that we need to be aware of?
1: Yes. And again, coming back to the pattern, if we're really observing some of those patterns and if we're observing some of um, the the ways that they're communicating, some of the ways you just mentioned, Liz, um, We might say to our patient, or our family, or friend member, "Oh, okay, so you know, you 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 manage the money because she's not very good at it. How did that come about? Mm. Was that a joint agreement? Was you know?" And so, you might just actually be curious and and unpack that a little bit if you're if you feel like you might be recognizing some indicators.
0: So, I think that's a really good segue into the next point, which Liz will just launch off in a second, is that we're talking about red flags or those threads that stick out and you're deciding whether you're going to pull on that or just let it be. Mm. And
2: that's a, that's a tricky, it's a tricky whether it's a patient or a colleague or your sister-in-law or, you know, anyone and, you know, not disqualifying that there are some men who also find themselves in domestic and family violence. But our point number three is like, okay, you've got some concerns. There's some real red flags. What do we do about it if we suspect that someone is in a
1: domestic or family violence situation? Sure. So, the really simple and important thing for us all to do is to just ask the question. So, when I say ask the question, we do need to be sensitive and compassionate and kind about how we ask it. I wouldn't ask someone, Are you experiencing domestic violence? Particularly not to start that conversation. I might say, you know, I noticed you're you're checking your phone a lot. Um and, and you seem seem a little bit upset or a little bit nervous. Uh are you okay? Is everything okay at home? I noticed that you're feeling a bit worried about going back home today. Um do you feel safe at home? Um does this happen often? Has this happened previously? Um and you might just start the conversation through some some kind questioning. Really importantly is that We're not questioning or asking or starting that conversation um, where it's not confidential. So it's important that the person um, feels that they are in a safe, confidential, private space. That's really going to determine whether or not they engage with that conversation to a huge, huge element. Um, And it's also really important that we don't ask that question uh, where when they're not safe. So some examples of that might be if their partner's with them. Another example um, might be uh, if their partner is within earshot um, and sometimes it simply is not the the best time to start that conversation um, and and we sensitively inquire when we can and when it's safe but it's something that we can do at later points as well and if it's something that we're all doing continuously, we're really able to convey that message that we care, we're, we're listening, we're here And it's your journey. And when you're ready, we'd love to have a conversation with you about that.
2: Yeah. And look, you know, if we're talking about patients, but again, even if you're talking about family members, if you're concerned, um, taking a woman to the toilet is always a really good one. It's You know, because sometimes partners just will not leave and you can't ask the question without perhaps escalating the chances of risk of violence. So to say, you know, like, we need a urine sample and I'm just going to come to the bathroom and help you. And then along the way say, you know, I'm I'm a bit concerned about the way your partner is speaking to you. It's making me feel uneasy. Like, is this a common thing? Is everything okay? You know, like I always say, it's like almost putting
1: something gently down on the table and
2: just seeing if someone picks it up.
1: Absolutely. And that's a really brilliant strategy. And I've seen nurses in particular do some brilliant responses in this area, particularly where we have that level of coercive control where you can't actually even have a conversation with someone. So, um, some of the other, um, I guess, strategies that I've seen is nurses um, advising around uh, certain visiting hours and due to COVID, this is our policy for everyone on ward and actually, you know, the visiting hours are at this time. So, unfortunately, people um, you know, we do need to insist on that, and 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 really making it a more general policy or, or procedure that we're doing. Similarly to taking someone to the bathroom or getting a sample, um, and just really um, not not um, contributing to any unintended consequences. Making it casual, staying within our scope of knowledge, um, and having a think about creative ways where we can where we can insert some safety in that space. Another really valuable uh, way to uh, get some support is to contact your social workers. So, social work can provide you with some suggestions or some ways or, or strategies that you might like to try and we can also attend um, and we can attempt to, to do some, some of that as the social worker on board as well.
2: Perfect.
0: Just as an elaboration to that because I've been in an outside of work situation where I've been confronted by a neighbour experiencing a crisis, basically. She's come over to our house. We'd had nothing to do with her because, again, very, very restrictive in her movements, have a young child. They're not our neighbors now. I'm not violating any kind of confidentiality here. Um, because she'd seen me coming and going from the house wearing scrubs, knew I was a health professional, so I felt it was safe to come over when she just had the hell beaten out of her. And, um, I guess we haven't kind of addressed the point of assessing imminent risks, like things like, uh, because some of the questions I ask, she's come over to our house with her daughter. Um, Where is your partner? Do they have access to weapons? What what state of mind are they currently in? Are they currently intoxicated? All of those sort of things to kind of get a risk profile for ourselves as the person that's trying to support.
1: Sure. That's a really great question. And I think the number one, um, I guess, tip around uh, someone's risk and our concern, whether they're our neighbor, whether they're our friend, whether they're our patient, is to insert those specialist supports or offer them specialist supports. Brilliantly, Jesse, you asked the one of the key questions first and I would encourage people to do that in that situation is, where is your partner? That's a really good question to ask because um, through that line of questioning, we can establish how long do we actually have here? Do we have five minutes or do we have an hour? If I've got five minutes, my next question might be, can I help you to call the police? Can I help you to call a crisis service? Can I drop you off at a crisis service for domestic violence? If we have an hour, our next question might be, what would you like? How can I help this a situation to be easier for you. Have you ever spoken to anyone about this? Um, have you ever accessed any support? Can I link in? There's lots of support out there. Um, I can support you to get, uh, make a phone call or or to find the right agency, the domestic violence service, or obviously in in hospital, it would be you know the social workers talk to a lot of people um, who are who are um, experiencing all sorts of. Um, challenges in their lives and they might be able to give you some options and some pathways that you might like to have a think about um, and and just be aware and there's no there's no pressure there's no um you don't have to make a decision it's just about getting some information being aware of your options and then you can have a think about that if you're not sure what you want to do
0: I thought it was really important because the to, to ask that because like my wife who's not in health just quickly ushered the lady and her daughter into our house, which I'm thinking, they live across the road. I was woken up from post-night shift sleep. So this was a very fuzzy sort of situation. But it, a natural instinct can sometimes just be protect the person immediately without looking at, at, like you said, what time do we have? What How safe is is this to be doing for you and for them? Um, so, uh, yeah, I just thought that was a good uh, and necessary thing for us to think about because yeah. it could also be the same if we're having that conversation at work with a patient.
1: Yeah, yeah. it's really important. And it's important that we're conveying to the person, again, depending on, on the level of risk and urgency, um, that this is not okay and there's help out there. Mm-hmm. Those two messages can really be a great starting point to encourage someone to, to get some support. Um, and of course, no one's expecting nursing or a neighbor or, or um, you know, other healthcare professionals to do a full domestic violence assessment and response. Um, we just want to establish there's some safety right now. Um, and can can we get some options? Can we get some planning? Can we get some support for this person? And there are experts and specialists out there who do that work and who will who will focus on that work and and who will hold and understand that risk and understand at what point they need to do what. Um, and at what point they can share information with other agencies and how to how to manage safety. Um, I just before we move
2: on, I think it's also really important for people to realise that domestic and family violence it rarely starts on day one. You know, like people can start off very charming. There's lots of love. There's lots of wonderful times, and then this insidious uh, undertone creeps in and then can escalate quickly or over time. Because of that it can take, you know, particularly women, but anyone some time to recognize it as violence and to help get themselves out of that situation. So the first time you approach someone, you've got a concern. It's highly unlikely that someone's going to go, you know what, this is domestic and family violence and I'm out of there. That's never how this goes down. Do You know, people initially are like, you know, there's children involved or financially I'll be in big trouble. or My family will really love this person or, you know, like, People take some time. So we've got to move gently, gently, don't we? Where we say, this is not okay, but I, I'm coming to you without judgment. My concern is for your safety. And at any point, if you're ready to return, whether this you're the nurse, the doctor, the allied health person, a friend, it's someone in your family, just leaving that door open is so powerful,
1: isn't it? Absolutely. And we know that that uh, separating or, or understanding domestic and family violence is a journey. So it's really important that we start where the person is at and that we understand that not all disclosures are help seeking. So just because someone today has told me maybe for the first time ever that they're experiencing um, some some violence or they're experiencing a lot of control in, in the relationship Um, Doesn't mean that that means they're ready to separate today. It doesn't mean they're ready to even talk to anyone else today. They are most likely, and the evidence base tells us, gauging the response. They 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 live in the same society that we live in, where um, we've just spoken about some of the conversations that happen in the media and amongst peers, and so they're conscious of that messaging and and um. The, the level of, of threat and worry that they have for their safety based on whatever their partner has been telling them, uh, usually as their single source of information where there's a lot of control and where there's a lot of isolation. And so they are wanting to know what happens when I approach someone about this. How will they respond? Will I be judged? Will I be blamed? Will I be criticized? Will I be told what to do? Will more patterns of control be replicated and I'm told what to do? The same way my partner tells me what to do. So it's really about understanding that it's very important that we start the conversation, we have the conversation, but we also listen. Hmm. And that
2: beautiful segue into your uh, number four point, which is you know, rather than us try and be the experts, why it's just so important to listen and to create a space for someone.
1: That's right. And so it's really important that we're supporting someone's agency and autonomy and dignity. And so similarly to all of our patient cares in all sorts of areas, it's patient-centered. And so, um, we're not making decisions for someone about someone without them in this area. And so it's really important for us to realize that we need to start by asking the question, having the conversation and offering the options and support. And then depending on what our patient or our friend or our neighbor is saying to us, we need to truly hear what they're saying. Because remembering that domestic and family violence is about risk and concerns for your safety. So, um, there is a real threat and fear that we might not be able to see and we might not even know about um, that is present for that person. Um, and they are worried, like you mentioned, Liz, about the um, prospect of not having any money if they if they leave or if they tell anyone, um, potentially being homeless. They might be worried about All of their family and friends not believing them. They might be worried about their, if they're on a partner visa, their immigration status. They might be worried about, uh, well, I'll have to uproot my children and I don't want to go to a women's shelter four hours away. So there's lots of different, um, I guess, barriers and concerns that people might have. Um, And it's really important that we understand that. they need to it needs to be their decision at their time and in their way how they how they respond or how they how they access support and what support they access our our role and our best way to support that is to provide them with options and information to make their world bigger to 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 broaden and push along those walls and ceilings and floors that have been coming closer and closer for them to for them to understand that, actually here's here's what i could do here's what i could access and now i'm going to let that process and have a think
0: about that that's really tricky isn't it because it rubs again we're talking obviously to a nursing audience predominantly but a a and largely an acute healthcare provider audience which that style of listening to actually understand versus listening to just capture enough red flags gather some data and then devise a plan of action is a big bump from uh, like that. They can be light years apart.
1: Yes. And and I really acknowledge that. And I acknowledge that as health professionals, as nursing, as physicians, as as health professionals, we we want to fix it. We want to provide a solution. We want to tidy it up. We want to support. We want to help. That that's why people get into, into our professions. And so, um, domestic and family violence is layered and complex and nuanced and sometimes it's not as simple as us having one conversation and being able to to get help that person or get them to separate or get them to see what's happening um and it's really important that we understand that it's part of a staged journey and every conversation we're having every time we're asking sensitively every time we're conveying this is not okay we're here let me know come back we are here this these people we can link you into these people um every time we convey that we are leaving that door open and we're encouraging that person to progress through their own journey at their own time within their own own constraints and remembering that that person is constantly juggling their own risk and safety concerns and and that um is is at the forefront of their minds with anything they do or don't do. It's about them being aware of what might escalate or not escalate their situation.
2: And you know, the primary, you know, cause for homicide for women and children in the Western world is at the hands of a partner. So their risk is real. And I do remember a very skilled domestic and family violence worker saying to me decades ago, you get into this relationship one step at a time and usually that's how you get out of it. You know, it's with careful strategizing, constantly weighing up risk, you know, hiding money away, seeking support, understanding what your options are. So, you know, these people are used to being yelled at, screamed at, coercive control. We have to provide something completely opposite to that, don't we? We're, we're compassionate and kind and non judgmental and this real sense of when you're ready, we're here
1: and these are your options. That's right, exactly. And what we need to understand is that we might hear things that are really shocking and really unacceptable to ourselves. And we just can't comprehend anyone putting up with, if you will, that. But what we need to understand is exactly what you've just said, Liz, is that people, this might be someone's norm. They might not know about healthy relationships or what that looks like. So, what a beautiful opportunity for us to model that and to provide that support and to show to them there's nothing that I gain or or receive from you. I'm just simply here to support you and to to go at your pace and to help you when you're ready. We also, the other thing that's really important to understand is that um, victim survivors are constantly resisting the violence. Mm -hmm. So we might not see that It might not be in the way that we would expect them to. They might not be going to the police or getting a domestic violence order. But there are lots of ways and strategies that they are employing to resist that violence. Um, So they don't just put up with it, Um, you know, from something as simple as knowing which bedroom to go to when there's an escalation happening, knowing that, you know, when he starts drinking, I pack the kids up, I take them and I go to my family's house. There are lots of acts of resistance and safety that victim survivors are already implementing, which is why they're sitting here today talking to us. Mm -hmm. It's through their own efforts and through their own safety and we really need to tap into that and what they would like before we can support. So much important information
2: for us and I guess you've know you really signposted for us about how important it is to move at the pace of the person in front of you. so, your number five point is you know where and when do you do the referral? And I guess this is where lots of people will get stuck. You know, like I've got this huge concern, something needs to happen today. Uh, you know i'm I'm mandated to make a referral. How do we navigate referrals, and what's the best places to send people? What's the best place to kind of share information that for someone who may not be able to have a pamphlet in their handbag? you know, can you talk us through
1: your number five? Absolutely. So I would always start with offering social work or asking um, or, or explaining that social work is part of the team and I'm going to get the social worker to come and see you. Social work really can support and navigate what stage of change that person might be at, whether they're ready to go right now, whether they are wanting to think about it or whether they are wanting to get some counselling and support to start to understand and unpack some of their experiences, social work are able to do those assessments. We're able to manage any risk or concerns. So really, I would encourage if if we are suspecting or if we're aware that there's concerns, whether the person is using violence or we think they might be communicating with control and coercion in their relationships or whether they are experiencing violence, um, link in with social work. Um, You can also link in with social work in the background as a consultation tool. So it doesn't need to be that social work come and see the person straight away, but we can help you guide your response and some of the options if you're still quite in the early stages or you're still only suspecting. We get lots of phone calls in the domestic and family violence service here around, this is what I've seen, this is what I've observed. How, how do I ask the question? Where do I start? Or this guy will not leave her side. You know, I'm a nurse in this area. What do I do? You know, I'm really worried about her. This is how she's come in. These are the injuries, or or whatever the case might be. Give us a call, and and we can support that. Um, the second thing to think about is when if you are sensitively inquiring, and if your patient or friend, if you're it's a neighbor or a friend, you're in the community. If that person is saying, "Yeah, you know, I think I think I would like some support. I think I would like like to talk to someone," um, that you're referring them to domestic violence specialist services. So um, that is very important, and that's what social work do as well. Once you once you link in at the hospital, but the domestic and family violence specialist services are are centres in each region or each area who do all types of supports. So they can do. Therapeutic counselling. They have women's groups or children's groups. They can support with safety planning, risk assessing, and exit planning. And they can also support with referrals for accommodation shelter. They can support with referrals um, for financial advice. Um, I know Brisbane Domestic Violence Service, who's who's in our our local region here, close to the the um, Royal, is. Um, employing a financial counsellor within their service who provides support to women who have, for example, um, significant debts arising from financial control and from being coerced to sign agreements or sign different um, debits. So much great information. I,
2: I really thank you for, you know, bringing to the light so many important issues that we need to think about for our patients, our own behaviour, the, the ways that we may are very unintentionally being reinforcing stereotypes or, or ideas and ideologies in our, our community. So let me just see how I go in summarising this. So number one is disproportionately domestic and family violence is a gendered issue where females are the victims and males are the perpetrators. We recognize that men can be victims, but disproportionately. This is something that happens to women. And so all of us, to change our society and our culture and the way we respond to this, we need to be mindful about what what we laugh at, what we joke, the language we use when we're describing women. Um, and also to say, you know, I don't find that funny or I find that offensive or I'm concerned. Number two you taught us about how to recognize domestic and family violence. And it's not just a black eye and a broken arm. It can be really harmful, derogatory words, insults, coercion, and control. People not having freedom to decide where they go or to access their own money or constant calls, texts, uh, someone by their side and, and saying, you know, I'm here because I'm the protector and I'm, you know, won't leave this person's side. So just to recognize that It can come in the sense of physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, financial, uh, a whole range of things. Number three, what do you do if you suspect domestic and family violence? And the first thing is, you know, to approach it with real gentleness, compassion, uh, uh, kindness without judgment, uh, just to present to someone maybe for the first time that you're concerned. Or that was painful to observe, and is this something that happens frequently? Uh, is you know has this ever been raised in the past? What would that person like in terms of resources or knowledge or a cup of tea? Starting very gently, gently, uh, recognizing that you know this is a very complex issue, and that people have probably been doing all sorts of things to keep themselves safe, and just to be mindful not to have conversations in front of the perpetrator or within earshot of the perpetrator because you may accidentally be putting that person at increased risk number 4 is why it's important to listen um and i guess that really feeds again into that number 3 about this may be the first time that this person can see the relationship through a different lens um, we want to that person to be in control and to let us know what they need so we need to be quiet and number 5 you know let's really think wisely about how we refer. Um, if you are in a hospital situation, the social work department should be your first port of call. If you're in the community, there are also social workers and community health, etc. cetera. Um, you know, the police are an option, but they shouldn't be something as a first port of influence where someone then loses further control of their life. You may be endangering them. So listen you know, move gently, refer wisely. And, you know, if you just Google domestic and family violence resources in my local area, a number of options, including 24-hour care
1: will come up, won't it, Yelena? That's right. There are crisis services who operate absolutely every day, every hour of the year, and who can respond to people and provide support and immediate support as well. Yeah.
0: I've got to say, I've learned a lot more in this conversation than I have from my online mandatory training. So (laughs) I really appreciate it. We had the opportunity to get into the nuances of the discussion around.
2: Outstanding. Thank you so much for the work that you do and the team that, you know, doing all this amazing support. Um, Thanks for being on Five Things. Great. Thank you, both.
0: The Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital Five Things Nursing Podcast acknowledges the Turrbal and Yagara as the First Nations owners of the lands we now tread. We pay respect to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of healing, teaching and learning. We also wish to acknowledge the First Nations people of the lands of our global community, and encourage our listeners to seek out, listen, and learn from the knowledge held in your shared space. As well as all major podcast outlets, you can find us at 5thingsnursing.podbean.com. Please also subscribe and give us a rating on your listening platform of choice. This helps others find the podcast. And finally, if you'd like to connect with Liz or myself on Twitter, we can be found at... Liz Crow 2. And for me, it's inject underscore orange. We would absolutely love to hear your thoughts, ideas, or feedback. Thanks for listening to 5 Things.